You are listening to the Passion City Church podcast. To learn more about Passion City Church, including our gathering times in Atlanta and Washington, D.C., visit us online at passioncitychurch.com. Today's talk comes from Pastor Ben Stewart. All right. Well, hello, Passion City Church. Man, it is great to be here with you. It's awesome to be in Atlanta. If for no other reason to just see this cube, I've been watching online and been trying to understand what was happening. I still don't understand it, but it's kind of cool to see it in person. Uh, And it's also so great to see all of you. We love being in D.C. We love being a part of Passion City Church in Washington, D.C., And it's always fun to come back here in Atlanta and see the family here and be encouraged by being together. So I'm grateful to be here. If you got a copy of your scripture, we're in James chapter one. I wanna read to you a couple verses, starting in verse 14. James chapter one, 14. I'll read a few, we'll pray, and then jump in. Uh, And while you're turning there, let me just say again too, it was such an honor to Uh, be invited to be here today by our Pastor Louie and Shelly, by Pastor Brad and Britt. Just, it's such an honor to be a part of uh, the family and just love them, and I'm grateful for their leadership. And Brad, you crushed it at a conference too, brother, by the way. Uh, Your uh, pastoring and shepherding of a moment is always inspirational uh, to watch. So thank you, brother. So, okay, Uh, James chapter one, verse 14 says this. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Well, Father, we just ask for your grace now as we open your word together and as we open a new year together. Lord, I pray that you would give us clarity. Even though there's so much uncertainty ahead in the world, may we get clarity on what it is that you think about and what it is that you care about. And I pray, Lord, it would inform what we think about and what we care about. So, Lord, I just want to ask you for a moment here for your grace that you would help us focus on your word and you would help us understand it, be affected by it, and be changed by it. And I pray that our lives would be different outside of this space in this moment as a result of this moment. And I can't produce that, so we're asking for your grace. And and I want to invite you, if you're willing, to take a minute and you pray and ask him that. Say, Lord, please teach me today. And then if you would, please pray for me, that the Lord would use me and I'd be helpful to you. Well, Father, we love you and we trust you. Use this time. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Well, several years ago, I had the opportunity to uh, attend a Navy SEAL training evolution in which the team was taking down a house filled with enemy combatants who were holding hostages. And it was a simulation, so they were using simulation rounds, paintballs, uh, but they're fired out of real guns, so they go fast and hard and 
hurt. Now, it was my understanding that I'd be watching all of this from the safety of an observation deck. However, when I got there, I was standing with the commanding officer, and as we watched these guys approach the door of the building, he motioned to me to start walking with him. So we start walking towards the front door, and then at one moment he stopped and he goes, hey, I wouldn't get any closer than this. He said, when they blow that door, sometimes the handle can shoot off like a bullet. I wouldn't get any closer. And I was like, yeah, fine. Like, I wasn't planning on being this close. And sure enough, they blew the door open and they went charging in. And then in that moment, he hit me in the chest and said, let's go. And he went running into the building. So I ran through that smoke-filled corridor too, in jeans and a t-shirt. And two things struck me immediately, uh, metaphorically speaking. The first was the chaos of the situation. I mean, it was nuts. Loud shots being fired, flashbangs going off, smoky. It was crazy. But the second thing that struck me was the beauty of their strategy. They were purposeful, but patient. They were aggressive, but fluid. They would show up at a doorway and with barely a nod, two of them would swing out to eliminate hostility without ever being an open target. And within seconds, these guys had neutralized all enemies, rescued all hostages, and taken a chaotic situation and brought in peace. And I remember as I watched that, the thought crossed my mind, this is the Christian life. Or at least it's supposed to be. Like, I don't know about you, but I don't think you have to journey long in life before you realize a life of spirituality occurs in a context of adversity. It's a fight. Not against people, but it's a battle spiritually. And some of you have encountered that, that you don't have to be a believer long before you realize the pursuit of intimacy with God occurs in a context of adversity. Some of you start the new year and you're like, I'm going to read the Bible this year. And as soon as you start reading, all manner of rival thoughts and affections come to the surface and you can't focus. Others of you set resolutions that you've already broken because you've realized the good I want to do, I don't do. And the evil I don't want to do, I keep doing that. And we realize, man, the pursuit of spirituality is happening in the context of adversity. It's a fight. It's a struggle. And if I can be honest, for many of us, we're just not doing great. And particularly in our modern world, there's something about modern life that's not promoting human flourishing, that anxiety and depression are on the rise, particularly among young people. And polarization politically and philosophically has incited fear in us and anger and discouragement and the constant comparison of our lives with other people's pristine presentations on their phone has filled us with depression. And then that irresistible lure of the phone keeps us in that place of comparison and that place of polarization and that place of stress and despair. And in the midst of all that, some of the traditional buffers of stress of community and intimacy with God have been removed. And so into that vacuum, addiction has taken its place for many people. And you look around and you go, if we're in a fight, we're not doing great. And if I can be honest, for many of us spiritually, we're discouraged by that situation. That you said, man, I thought when I came to Jesus, it'd be easier. And maybe you go, you know, I don't know. I don't know what I expected. Maybe when I put my faith in Christ, I just thought some of these struggles inside would go away. Some of these desires would leave. I just thought I'd be happy all the time and peaceful all the time and fly around and sprinkle Jesus dust on everyone. Like, I just thought it would be easier. And then you show up in places like this and we bring up the guy that was like, man, I was hooked on every single drug. 
And I put my faith in Jesus, and you know what? I never struggled again. That temptation was pulled up by the roots. And you hear that, and you're like, that's so great. But then you're like, God didn't even mildly prune my addictions. They're still growing and as robust as ever. So maybe I'm doing something wrong. What has he got that I don't? God, and some of you are just discouraged by the situation because you go, man, the constant hum of my failure is just running in the background of my life. And it's like a wet blanket of discouragement is putting out your fire of affection for the Lord and you're discouraged by the situation. Or others of us go, no, Ben, I, I know. I've, I've been a Christian long enough. I've read the Bible. I know there's battle imagery and war imagery and it's a fight. I get it. I understand that's the situation. What I need is a strategy. I want to look more like the seals and less like you. I want to look trained and prepared, not running around in flip-flops going, it's smoky in here. Like, show me how to be a victor and not a victim, right? And the strategies you've been using haven't been working. Like, I don't know about you. I grew up going to camp, and uh, the, the first couple days of camp, everyone acted crazy. I mean, we were smoking, drinking 40s. It was out of control. <laughs> That's not an exaggeration. But on the last night of camp, man, everybody got saved. After a couple days of malnutritious food and little sleep, we were all a little emotionally volatile. And the band would get us all worked up. And the speaker would get us fired up. And at the end of it, we were all locking pinky swaying, singing friends are friends forever. And then at the emotional pitch, it was open mic night. And one after one, we would get up there and say these big promises of what we were gonna do for God. I just want you all to know. I'm never going to sin again. You're like, I don't think he is. He's had such a good week at camp. I literally think he's there. I just want you all to know, I'm going to tell everyone on the planet about Christ. You're like, he is prophesying right now. And on and on it would go. But there wasn't a one of us that two weeks later hadn't broken every promise. And we were in our bedrooms surrounded by the same addictions going, what's wrong with me? And for many of us, we're like, you know what? Maybe there's a super spiritual life available to some other people and, and it's not available for me. And for many of us, we're discouraged by the situation and we need a new strategy. And so my hope in these few moments is not to give you a pump-up speech. I don't think that's what we need at the beginning of this year. I wanna help you struggle well. And so I wanna look at the situation and then go, then can we almost in an emotional way evaluate our strategy so we'll look at the situation and the strategy. And the situation is, frankly, this. It feels like a war because it is a war. Yeah, right. That spirituality is in the context of adversity. The pursuit of God happens in that space. Jesus presented himself that way. As much as he's presented in the scriptures as a shepherd uh, and a caretaker for us, he's presented as a warrior. 1 John 3, 8 says the Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. That his reason for arriving was destruction. That Jesus came as a landed invasion. The first introduction of the Son of God in Genesis chapter 3 was the seed of the woman will come to crush the head of the serpent. The very first mention of the arrival of Jesus is in the context of adversity. He's going to war against the one who's deceived us. And so you see, Jesus' arrival is a landed invasion. He came to fight for you and for me. And it wasn't just an invasion, it was a rescue operation. That in his first sermon, he stepped forward and said, I have come to proclaim release to the captives. The assumption there is you're held in bondage and you can't get you out. 
And one of my favorite explanations of his life in Luke chapter 11, Jesus was asked to explain his ministry. And he said, imagine a guy who's fully armored up with a bunch of treasure. He said, now imagine a stronger guy beating him up, stripping off his treasure and taking his things. That's me. You ever describe Jesus that way? He's like a dude that beats someone up and steals his things. That's Jesus. Read Luke chapter 11. When a strong man fully armed guards his house, his possessions are undisturbed. But when someone who's stronger comes, he attacks him, overpowers him, and takes away from him his armor on which he relied and distributes his plunder. The plunder was us. The strong one was the enemy. And Jesus says, the good news is, the stronger one is here. Why do you think demons fled when Jesus showed up? Because the stronger one is here. And let me just encourage you, church, with this. If you're wrestling with some addictions and discouragements, and you have a New Year's resolution, but it's a weak little cardboard shield against the onslaught of your addiction, let me tell you something. There's a stronger one here. And so it was an invasion and it was a rescue operation, not by perpetrating violence, but by taking it upon himself. He who knew no sin became sin for us. I'll take the hit for you. Since the children participate in flesh and blood, he likewise partook of the same, that through death he might set free those who through fear of death were held captive all their lives. And it's not just a rescue operation, it's an ongoing mission. He says, I want you to now be a part of what I'm doing. That's what C.S. Lewis said, enemy-occupied territory. That is what the world is. He said, Christianity is the story of how the true king has landed. You might say landed in disguise. And he is calling us all to take part in his great campaign of sabotage. We're in a war, but it's a war in which our king has won the decisive victory. And yet he has not set you free from the struggle. He set you free to struggle. Before you were just a victim. Now you have a chance to be victorious. We saw it with King David. Do you remember back in the Old Testament when Goliath was attacking, the Philistines had encroached upon Israelite land? What did the Israelites do? They cowered in fear. They were powerless before Goliath until David came forward and that young rescuer killed Goliath. What did Israel do? When they saw their little shepherd king take out their big enemy, they shouted the war cry and drove the Philistines out of their land. And it's the same with you and me. We are powerless against death and sin and condemnation. The enemy has it on you and he's right. You're worthy of it. And yet the son of God, Jesus Christ, came forward. The son of David beat death. Our biggest enemy, our condemnation, our shame. He beat it and buried it. And what does that allow us to do? What the Israelites did. Shout the war cry and drive the Philistines of fear, lust, and pride out of our hearts. He's empowered us. There's a great movie, uh, Master and Commander, starring Russell Crowe, that uh, he is the, uh, the leader of an sh of English ship charged with taking out Napoleon's greatest frigate. And at one moment, he goes and pulls his ship alongside, disables their mainmast, boards the ship, fights the men all the way down to the hull. And as the captain gets down to the bottom, there are all these English sailors held captive in a cell. And you watch him break open the chains, swing open the gates, and the men run out, huzzah! And as they run out of the prison, they're each handed a sword. Because they've been set free, but they've been freed into a fight. And it's the same with you, and it's the same with me. And some people I talk to are so discouraged, they come to Christ and go, I just thought I wouldn't wrestle with these desires anymore. Read the text, man. Before, you were just a victim to it. Now you have the possibility to be a victor, but you are not freed from the fight, you're freed for the fight. 
And he's set you out and he's handing you a sword and it's time to go to war. And so in our situation, if I could summarize the spiritual life for those of us who are in Jesus, I would say it's one movement with two parts. It's one movement with two parts. It's a movement away from certain things and a movement towards certain things. It's a movement away from ways of thinking and ways of living that isolate me from intimacy with God. And it's a movement towards ways of thinking and ways of living that promote intimacy with God. Old school theologians had a word for this. They called it sanctification. Sanctification, it's a word that's built off the word holy. Sanctify holy is the same word. And holy means set apart. And you can hear these two pieces in that word. That in the Old Testament, there were utensils that were holy in the temple. That means they were set apart from common usage. They were only to be used in worship. Uh, my wife is holy unto me. Only I may touch her, you shall not, right? <laughs> Some of you have a coffee mug that is holy unto you. No pagan lips may touch it. You see it? Away from certain things towards others, right? Now, theologians had a word for each of these two parts. The movement away, they called mortification. That there are certain ways of thinking and ways of living that used to be a part of my life, that maybe still are a part of my friends' lives, but now I mortify them, I kill them, I will not revel in what my king died to set me free from. I put these things to death. They're not a part of my life anymore. But then there are other things, and they call this other part vivification. But there are other th ways of thinking and ways of living I want to help vivify, I want to bring to life, I want to promote. If we were using gardening imagery, this would be the pulling up of weeds. There, there were things that used to be true of me. They just don't have a place in my life anymore. And this would be the planting of flowers and plants. But there are some other things I want to plant into my life. I want to see get enriched in the soil of my soul. I want to see flourish and grow. If we were using dating imagery, this would be me taking my wife on dates and talking to her and going to restaurants that aren't ringed with TVs so I can listen with my face and those sorts of things. This would be not yelling at her or dating other women. See that? I don't do these things, and I do these things. It's one movement, but two parts. That's spirituality. Now, let me clarify before we move on to our strategy. What I'm not saying is, so this is the devil side of the stage. That's the God side of the stage. So you gotta get on that God side, kids. Like, I'm not saying that, because that makes it sound like God is standing over here waiting for you to get your act together. And that's not the way it works. Jesus said, when you put your faith in me, I make you something new. You've been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved son. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. He is with you purely by grace because of his finished work on the cross. And yet I know my wife will never leave me. And yet I can feel miles away from her, even when I'm physically next to her, because I haven't done the work to cultivate intimacy. And it's the same with Jesus. He's not gonna leave you. The fight is for an unrestrained intimacy. That's the fight. Do you see it? Paul said it this way to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.22. Flee youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, love, faith, and peace along with those who call out to the Lord out of a pure heart. Do you hear it? I'm fleeing and I'm pursuing. One movement with two parts. I call it the big no and the big Yes. And a lot of people are familiar with the no's. Man, you came to Christ, you can't do this, you can't hang with us, you can't do that. Yes, there are some no's, but they free us up to the better yes. Right? And this process does not happen in a vacuum. 
And so as we look at our strategy, we have to realize we have an enemy. And that enemy hates us. So I remember when I was uh, in uh, middle school. I remember the, f- the first day uh, of middle school. I was so excited to go to school. I was going to ride the bus with my big brother, and, uh, who was, by all accounts, endlessly cool. So as we got onto the bus, he was walking towards the back where all the cool kids sat. I was related to him, thus cool by proxy, so I made my way to the back. And as I did it, this guy jumped up right between us and put his face right in my face. And this is before I knew that's what some guys do when they want to fight. I just thought he had like proximity issues. He's right in my face and he was like, are you Cole Stewart's brother? And I said, yeah. He said, I hate your brother. And it turns out, what I didn't know at the time, learned later, was this kid was a bully. Got some emotional needs met by picking on little kids. He just had one problem. He had decided to play football. And so had my brother. And one day at practice, my brother was running with the ball, and this kid, Marvin, attempted to tackle him, and my brother ran into him and hit him so hard that he flew through the air and uh, made squealing sounds like a piglet. Which, when you're trying to be a bully, will cramp your style. So fast forward back to the bus. He looks at me and he said, are you Cole Stewart's brother? I said, yeah. And he said, I hate your brother. And then he said, so I hate you. And then he put his finger on my face and said, you look good with a cigarette burn here. And pushed my face. And then from behind him, we heard the voice, Marvin. He kind of straightened up. But as he sat back down, he said, it's going to be a long year, little brother. Now question, why did he hate me? I didn't do anything to him. I'll tell you why. Because I looked like the one who shamed him. And Jesus triumphed over the enemy. And if you associate with him, you now have an enemy who hates him, so he hates you. And he will not be successful at a full frontal assault against our king. So what will he do? He's coming after you. So when you come to Christ, you aren't less of a target of temptation. You might be more so. And so if we know that, what do we do? Well, let's look at what he does and then what we do. Let's talk about strategy. Let's look at what his goal is. His goal is to get you to sin. What does that mean? It means that you would take a willful step away from intimacy with God, right? How would you do that? Why would you participate in something that insane? Well, he has to create an environment where that looks attractive. And how does he do it? Well, he knows how you're wired. He knows that you have a mind, cognitive faculties. He knows that you have affections, inclinations towards and disinclination towards certain things. And he knows you have a will, a decision-making mechanism, that we are mind, affections, will, head, heart, and hands. So what does he do? He solicits thoughts to the mind to stir the affections because our thoughts are the fuel for our affections. Our affections are the engine of our actions. Do you see it? And when you enact the will, you sin. You start to move to places you were never meant to be. But to get you there, he has to create this environment that the Bible calls temptation. And you go, Ben, where are you getting all this? Well, I got it from James. We read it earlier. James said in James 1.14, but each one is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Notice the word lure there. He's going to lure us. That's to get your mind's attention. And entice us. That's to stir the heart's affections. And then when you enact the will, you bite down. And you never even see the hook. Do you see it? He uses fishing imagery. 
And he says, each one of us is tempted. He's gonna tailor make it to you. He's watched the game film on you. When you present a lure to a fish, what are you hoping to do? You don't wanna just get its attention. You wanna stir his affections. You wanna interrupt him mid-sentence with his little fish buddies. They're like, anyway, so I was saying, to, Whoa, hello there, little buddy. What are you doing? Maybe you get a frog and hop it along so it looks wounded and delicious. And you don't just want his attention, you want his affections. And when he enacts the will, he never sees the hook and it never crosses his mind that there was a sentient being behind this whole thing. And yet some may look at that and go, a frog? Really? It's gross. Like that turns you on. I don't know how you can call yourself a real fish if you struggle with that. Ooh. Well, that's fine. He just gets a different lure for you. Maybe something shiny that you'll go, ooh, shiny, right? Each one is tempted. Some of the best self-knowledge you can have is how does he get me? Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, keep a close watch on yourself and your hearing. Persevere in this to save both yourself and your hearers. He told him, know what you believe, Timothy, and then know yourself. Be a student of you. Know how he gets you so you can make a different choice. And so I watch this whole thing play out and I become a student of myself because Sun Tzu said it in The Art of War. If you know your enemy and know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. But if you know neither your enemy nor yourself, you will succumb in every battle. And some of us, that has been the story of every year for you. But when we see his strategy, we can enact our own. What do we do? Let me give you three things. Number one is we eliminate the moment. Eliminate the moment. Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 26, 41, watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. But notice where Jesus draws the battle line. He doesn't say watch and pray that you may not enter into sin, a willful step away from intimacy with God. He says watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation, that if this always leads there, let me stay away from this. You see it? And so I had a friend that um, years ago told me about a buddy of his that had uh, confided to him that said, hey, man, he, he'd been having arguments with his wife. And in those arguments, they had escalated and they become shouting matches and they'd even become physical at times. It was the destruction of their marriage. And my friend he confesses to said, hey, man, you can't ever put your hands on your wife in a hurtful way. You need to get counseling. The church needs to come around you. We need to solve this. He says, hey, but, but as we're looking at this, what is the environment that leads you to this place? And like most people, he's like, man, I don't know. He's like, yeah, you do think about it. He's like, well, you know, like we go to this bar on Thursday nights and, and we drink with some buddies and she always wears less clothes than I want her to. And then people start hitting on her and she doesn't rebuff their advances the way I want. And so we start arguing and then the argument escalates when we get home and on it goes. My buddy told him, well, man, you may need to get some counseling but why don't as a first step, y'all just quit going to that bar? That's not gonna solve it all, but if this always leads to that, let's start here and eliminate this moment. And it never crosses mind. Well, that's tequila Thursday. Well, it's not worth sitting over. And I talk to so many people that they're the same way, that say, man, what's going on with you? Man, I, I struggle with pornography. Where does it get you? 
And for many people that I know struggle with that and that addiction steals so much of their vibrancy. They're like David in the Psalms. He says, when I had unconfessed sin, it sapped my strength like the heat of summer. And I see so many young people that don't feel strong because they feel dominated by this thing. So you go, all right, let's not shame ourselves. Let's look at the strategy. How does it get you? And I have so many tell me, man, it's my screens late at night, maybe my phone by my bed, can't stop. I say, man, that makes sense. You're at your weakest, most vulnerable moment. You put the entire world wide web next to your head. It's a bad strategy. Paul told the Romans, make no provision for the flesh or the lust thereof. That is ample provision. That would be like an alcoholic pouring a glass of scotch every night and going, okay, now I'm not gonna drink you and then set it by his head. Bad strategy. So I say, man, get rid of the phone. Get the screens out of your bedroom. Eliminate that moment. I talk to so many guys that that's never crossed their mind. They're like, I don't know though, man, it's my alarm clock. Well, buy an alarm clock. They're not expensive. But if this leads to that, you fight the battle here. And let me tell you something. Jesus used that illustration of if your right eye caused you to sin, pluck it out. And he wasn't saying literally pluck your eye out because you could just lust with the left eye. Or you pluck them both out and still lust in your mind. What he was saying is many of us aren't getting radical enough. And for me, I talked about it at a conference of just the way anxiety and comparison and polarization is pushing, 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 pushing through screens that, that are, are built to incite that kind of emotional response. And I realized if I start my day here, I start off slant and it doesn't get better. And so this thing gets away from me. I'm gonna put scripture before social media. I'm gonna pray more than I post. I'm gonna take a walk with the Lord rather than soaking in the world because this creates chaos and I want calm. And yet I talk to so many people that they're soaking their minds in the anxiety being presented to them in the world and they're not even evaluating what it's doing to them. I'm not shaming you, I'm inviting you, evaluate. If I don't like where I am, if I don't like the outputs, consider the incomes, the inputs, and eliminate that moment. More we could say there, but James gives us two other things that can kind of help us. Number two is he says paddle downstream. He says uh, in verse 15, desire when it's conceived gives birth to sin and sin when it's fully grown brings forth death. He says desire is not a sin. Temptation is not a sin. But when you enact the will, when, when you unite your will with it, he does something interesting here. He actually doesn't use fishing imagery. In Greek, much like Spanish, nouns can have a masculine or feminine form and desire is feminine. And so what he's saying is when you unite your will with desire, she gets pregnant. And she has a baby called sin. And sin is also a feminine word. And sin, when she's fully grown, she has a baby called death. And James does this on purpose to shock you. Because the happiest moment in your life is the birth of a child. It's literally the bringing forth of new life. And he says, when you enact your will, when you unite with desire, she'll give birth to sin. And maybe you go, yeah, I know, but I don't care. But keep watching because sin, she will bring forth death. You will bring a little bit of death into the world. And it's meant to shock you and break the spell. Because temptation often doesn't show you the conclusion. That's how it works. And so in recovery circles and Alcoholics Anonymous, they talk about thinking through the drink. When I wanna get rid of some intolerable feelings, I go to something that will obliterate them. And the voice in my head will whisper, hey man, just do one, you know you can stop, you can quit at any time, you're an adult, you can handle yourself. And they have to go, no, 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 no. I know if I start here, I'm gonna end up here. And if I end up here, I'm gonna end up there. And I don't wanna be there. So before I get in this boat, let me look downstream and hear the crashing waterfall. And if I don't wanna be there, 
I'm going to stop this thing up here. And I have a friend who's a pastor that in his prayer closet, he's got pictures all over it of pastors who are out of ministry because of moral failure. And it's a little morbid in there. You know, you're like, what is this about? And uh, it's not morbid curiosity. Because as I walked out the door once, I noticed right at eye level, there was a picture of a pastor who had uh, lied about, about using drugs and, and committing adultery and running around on his wife. And, but in this photo, he was still denying all the allegations. So there were all these uh, paparazzi around his car. And you can see he had the smile on. He was kind of spinning the story. My friend had circled his wife's face and wrote next to it, look at her eyes. Because she had this stare that was a million miles off or looking at nothing at all. And you could tell she just wasn't into the lies anymore. The damage was already done. And my friend did this to remind himself, when life gets hard, the enemy will whisper sweet escape. But before I start to believe that running into the arms of somebody else will provide for that, let me look downstream and see where it leads. Let me see what happens to pastors who make that choice. And if I don't want that outcome from my life, my family's life, my wife, my kids, if I don't want to be there, let me stop it up here. It's way earlier to fight your enemy before that has a chance to get his armor on. Don't wait until they're all armored up and fed and marching into your territory. So I do battle here. If I don't want to be there, I stop the flow here. I know for me, after my catastrophic back injury. One of my doctors told me, hey, one of the things you need to do is lose a lot of the not muscle you're carrying around. And I was like, okay, great, man. And I remember as I started to try to do that, I had a problem, namely that I love sugar. I'm like a hummingbird. I run off it. And uh, I like chocolate cake a lot. And um, so I told my wife, you have to get this stuff out of the house. I said, because if I die, it's kind of your fault, you know? (laughs) So we got to eliminate this moment. But then what happens when you're around it? And what I started to do is I started to say to myself, I can eat that. I can totally eat that. And I could live this kind of lifestyle. And then I'll have to hire somebody else to play with my kids. Because for me, I was in jeopardy of even being able to walk again. And I realized I have to be serious about my health if I want to physically be upright. That's the place I'm in. And I realized, let me evaluate that. Do I want to eat this way? Or do I want to play with my children? Because this is going to take me down a path where I can't do that. And rather than making this a temptation, it made it my enemy. How dare you try to keep me from my kids' chocolate cake? (laughs) But when I look downstream, it helps me eliminate the moment because it breaks the spell. Do you see it? But then I also look upstream and trace it back. If this temptation has a strength in my life, where does its power come from? If this pull towards something destructive has this rushing river behind it, what's the waterfall creating it? And so we gotta look upstream and James does that. He says in verse 16, do not be deceived, my dear brothers. If destruction is downstream from temptation, deception is upstream. And he says, don't be deceived. And yet he does something interesting. He doesn't say, don't be deceived. These temptations are bad for you. He doesn't look downstream, he looks up. He says, don't be deceived. Every good and perfect gift comes down from above, from the Father of lights in whom there's no shadow due to change. He says the lie that launches a million sins is the lie that God is not a good dad. He says the thing that will make you go to so many deceptive streams for nourishment is the belief that God isn't a satisfying stream. 
the lie that launches a million sins is he's not a good dad. That, that, that's where Genesis started. When Satan came into the garden, he didn't start with saying, you know what I was thinking about the other day? Fruit and how delicious it is. Let's jump into this, Eve. He doesn't start there. What does he start? He starts with theology. Did God really say, you can't eat from any tree of the garden? It seems like your religious commitments are holding you back, Eve, from experiencing life. And it seems like he's holding back some life-enhancing things for you because he doesn't want you to have some things that would be good for you. It seems like you can't trust him, Eve, and when he makes God look ugly, that's when he can make sin look attractive. He fights at this level. He did it with Jesus too. If you really are the son of God, why are you so hungry out here? Why won't he give you bread? His lies are aimed at the sonship of Jesus. That's how the enemy works. If you made it a goal in 2022 to destroy Ben Stewart, let's say that's on your list. Destroy Ben Stewart. Let me tell you how to do it. You go lean down and you get in the face of one of my little elementary school age girls. And you look them in the face and say, you know what, sweetie? Your dad is so disappointed in you. Man, you let him down. You're an exhaustion. You just disappoint him over and over and over again. And you know what? He's not going to say it because he's so good, but you're a hassle. And it would be so much easier if you'd get out of here. Go somewhere else. Go find love in some other arms. Go find security some other place. Go run somewhere else to try to get rid of the pain or find some joy. Go. You whisper craziness like that to my kid, all my anger comes towards you. But don't miss this. That's what the enemy does to you. That the lie that will launch you to a million broken relationships and decisions and addictions is the lie that God doesn't love you, doesn't care about you, wouldn't give everything for you, hasn't already given all for you. Don't be deceived. Every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from above, from your father, and there's no shadow, there's no variation due to change of his own will. He brought you forth by the word of truth. Sin's not the only one having babies. That God the Father brought you forth by the word of truth out of his own thelema, desire, his will. He wanted you and he brought you to life and he loves you. Fight the enemy there because here's the last piece. The best defense against sin is a good offense. It's a good offense. The great way to dislodge a beautiful thing is to replace it with a more beautiful thing. How did Romeo get rid of Rosalind? How did Romeo get rid of Rosalind? Does anyone remember Rosalind, Romeo and Juliet? Nobody? At the beginning of Romeo and Juliet, Romeo is pining away about Rosalind how beautiful she is, how desirable she is, how lovely she is. And he does it so often, it starts to annoy his buddy Benvolio. So Benvolio tells him, dude, I'm taking you to a party tonight. There's gonna be like 100 girls hotter than Rosalind. It's a rough translation. It's like the message version, but read it. It's there. <laughs> and what does Romeo say? The all-seeing sun has ne'er met her match since first the world begun. Oh, there's nothing more alluring than Rosalind. <laughs> then he goes to the party and he sees Juliet. And that night, he sneaks into her yard and says, but soft, what light through yonder window breaks? It is the east and Juliet is the sun. Arise, fair sun, and kill the envious moon that's already sick and pale with grief that thou, her maid, art far more fair than she. Rosalind who? 
And the best way for you and I to fight some of the temptations we're trying to dislodge from our life in 2022 is to replace them with a more beautiful thing. And so, man, we fight the deception by looking at the devotion to our Father. That's what Jesus did. Pastor Louis talked about it, that at his baptism, right before Jesus was tempted by the devil in the wilderness, what happened first? His father, as he was baptized, spoke over his life. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. But Jesus hadn't done anything yet. All the water was still water. There's no wine. All the blind people still blind. Lame people still can't walk. He hadn't done anything. But the father's pleasure is on his child. And so when the devil came with temptation, Jesus is just fighting him off with Deuteronomy quotes. Nah, man, I don't need that. And the pleasure of his father helped him fight the pressure of the wilderness. It's the same with you. You pursue your joy in him and the things of this earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. Augustine, one of the greatest thinkers in Christian history, was a sex addict. And yet as he saw the sufficiency of Jesus, he knew I need to bow my knee to him, but I'm afraid of turning loose of what brought me so much comfort in his troubled life. But he finally realized I have to come to Jesus. There's no one like him. And when he finally submitted his will, he did it with trembling. But then he wrote later in his confessions how sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys which I had once feared to lose. You drove them from me, you who are the true sovereign joy. You drove them from me and you took their place, you who are sweeter than all pleasure. If you were encouraged by today's talk, be sure to rate us and hit subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever you stream your podcasts. To experience other talks, videos, and live gatherings, visit us online at passioncitychurch.com or download the Passion Movement app. And again, thanks for listening to the Passion City Church Podcast.